If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 9. This morning we are finishing out Matthew chapter 9. Uh, we're, we're trucking away through it. Eventually we're going to get there, right? About page 475 in the Blue Bibles and somewhere around 1,000 in the King James Version, the red ones. The first Baptist missionary who came from America did not initially leave America as a Baptist. The first Baptist missionary who came from America did not initially leave America as a Baptist. Adoniram Judson was born to Congregationalist parents in 1788, and though he was raised as a Christian, Judson ended up rejecting Christian theism in favor of skepticism while he was at college. He remained a skeptic for a few years until one night, as he was staying at an inn, there was a man violently dying in the next room that he could hear. In the morning, Judson discovered that not only had the man died in the night, but that the man was one of his good friends from college who had convinced him of skepticism. This event shook Adoniram so deeply that he now feared remaining in skepticism. And so, though he was not yet a Christian, Adoniram was given a provisional status at a seminary to go and start to study the scriptures. And so Adoniram uh, became a Christian while he was there studying. It wasn't long before he became a Christian, truly for the first time. And it wasn't much longer before he and some of his classmates were convinced that they must go to other countries where the name of Christ has not been heard, the name of Jesus has not yet been heard, and proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So in 1810, the Congregationalists formed a mission board, one of the first in American history. And they appointed Adoniram and four others as missionaries to the Far East. And about two years later, it took about two years to get everything set and to get everything ready and prepared. And two years later, in February, in the span of two weeks, in 1812, Judson got married to the 23-year-old Anne Hasseltyn. He was ordained for ministry and they boarded a ship to go to India. Now, Adoniram and Anne are somewhat famous in uh, Baptist circles because while they were on their long voyage to India, they prepared to meet with the famous Englishman and Baptist missionary, William Carey. How did they prepare? Well, they knew Carey was going to push them on their beliefs. They were pedo baptists they infant baptism, they baptized infants. And so they were studying to shore up their convictions and to be prepared to, uh, to debate and to be able to stand firm as Pado baptists when they come across the great missionary, William Carey. But they themselves ended up being convinced of the Baptist positions while they were studying the scriptures. They believed that Baptists were correct in saying that only those with a credible confession of faith should be baptized. So, while the Judsons were sent by the Congregationalists as the first American missionaries ever to be sent, they arrived as Baptists. And through no effort from Baptist churches, the first American missionaries were therefore Baptist. As a testament to their integrity, they wrote home and resigned from the Congregationalist Missions Agency, effectively cutting off all of their funding. All because, out of conviction, they could not plant churches that would baptize children. There was another man who had come to India and he had became convinced of Baptist beliefs in the same trip. He was another missionary who left with them, and his name was Luther Rice. 
He returned home to America, though, and through much work, saw the formation of the first American Baptist Missionary Union, a predecessor to our International Missionary Board. It was another year before they reached their final destination of Burma, which is now called Myanmar. And from the beginning, Adoniram had two specific goals in mind. Number one, to translate the Bible into Burmese so that the people could read it in their own language. That should always be at the forefront of any missions endeavor, is to get the word of God into their language so that they can understand it for themselves. And number two, to see 100 Burmese converts before he died. Judson died in Burma in 1850, about 40 years after he set sail. And he had seen 100 churches planted, not simply 100 converts, but 100 churches planted, and over 8,000 new believers. And to this day, Burma, Myanmar, is now is the country with the third most Baptists in the world. Adoniram saw the harvest was plentiful, and he went and labored to see that harvest come to fruition. Let's read Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35 together. And I'd like to try something if you guys are up for it. After I read the scripture, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you agree with that, just give me a hearty, thanks be to God. All right, let's try that. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's do this. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, he, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. This is the word of the Lord. All right, we'll keep working on that. So we've spent the last few weeks seeing implicit, implicit compassion from Jesus. We see it by the way that he interacts with people. It's not said that he takes compassion on people. It's shown that he takes compassion on people. And we see that implicit uh, compassion through the ways that he interacts with those who are hurting or on the outskirts of society. And this morning we close out chapter 9 with this explicit statement that he had compassion on the crowds who were coming to him. Jesus, after healing the two unclean women and the two blind men and the man who had a demon that kept him from speaking, he continues to travel all around the region, teaching in all the cities and villages nearby and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. Now, let's pause here for a minute. Because often, those of us who have been Christians for a long, long time, the word gospel, we kind of say it and we don't even think about it. We don't consider the implications of what that word means. We don't uh, dive into it. And so let's take a second to look at this word. What is that word gospel? We hear it all the time because we are here in the church, but it, it's also a word that's regularly used in our culture, right? We say if someone uh, believes something strongly or thinks it's right, it's the gospel truth, right? It doesn't matter if we're talking about the Bible or not, and we say that. We have an entire... Uh, genre of music that gets secular award, awards called gospel music. But do we really know what that word means? Gospel. 
because it's a weird word. It's not really an English word, is it? Like, can we tear it apart and say, oh yeah, no, I know exactly what that means. Can we break that word down? I'm a nerd for words, all right? So hopefully, some of you are nerds for words as well. Otherwise, just do your best to follow along. Um, so to clarify the word gospel, we have to start by tracing its roots back. So starting with the word gospel, we can immediately trace it to the Old English, which means God spell. It is two words. God means good and spell means news. So we get this from Old English and it means good news. So that makes sense because the older form of our language is Old English. But how do we get all the way back to Bible times? Because they weren't speaking Old English when they wrote the Bible, did they? Well, from Old English, it traces directly into the church Latin as bona annunciado, which means good news or good announcement. The reason Latin is a big deal is because it ties directly into the Roman Catholic Church, which has existed for a very long time. That's getting us back further. But not only that, it is tied to the Roman Empire, which was contemporary with Jesus. So we're starting to get closer to the root of where this word comes from. And we have to continue to look in Latin and continue to dive back in that in order to see that in the ecclesiastical Latin, there's this word evangelion, evangelium. And that's where we get word, the words like evangelism, evangelical. And it uh, means, it's a word that's taken from Greek, and it means good news. All right? So we're getting this clearly. And then in the Greek version of that word that the Latin took from it, it's euangelion. It just means good news. And this is the exact word that you will find in all the Greek manuscripts that we have of the Old Testament books, euangelion. So that's, that's the word tree to get to gospel. Uh, and so it's like plain telephone a little bit. But euangelion was a word that was usually used to refer to the runners who would bring the good news that the battle has been won and that this, the cities who were preparing for battle in case they lost at the city uh, next to them, it was a runner who would come and bring euangelion, good news that the battle had been won and they were saved. So what then is Jesus proclaiming as he proclaims this gospel of the kingdom? That it says in our text, he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. So what then is this good news, this gospel? For many, if I asked, and I, I asked you, what is the gospel? Many people would say, Jesus died for our sins. And that's about all the extent of what we would say. That's about all the extent of what we know. And you would be partially right if that's what you would say. But we have to ask the question, because people do ask this question, how is Jesus proclaiming that he died for people's sins before he died for their sins? If he's out proclaiming the gospel, how does that make sense? So it has to be more than just that. And in the context of the verse, as we look, we can see that it says it's not just the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel of the kingdom that he is proclaiming. And when we look at all of Jesus' teachings, like the parables and those sorts of things, and start to understand what is this good news of the kingdom he is uh, proclaiming, it is that God has made a way for people to join him in his kingdom. This is the good news of the kingdom. As we read the parables, we see that Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like this. And he's telling people what it means to be invited into the kingdom. He's telling people what the kingdom of God actually is instead of the preconceived notions that they had. And so this good news that God has made a way for his people to join him in his kingdom is good news that those who are lost in sin and desperate to be free and forgiven have been given a path. 
those who have been abused and outcast by society, those who feel like they have no home, they have a home and a good father in this kingdom. They had spent, the, the people that Jesus was proclaiming this to, they had spent their whole lives living in the promised land, but living under the laws and torments of the occupying Roman Empire. They had spent their whole lives under the worst laws and torments of the religious leaders who claimed to speak for God, but really were just men who made up laws that suit, suited their own desires. They had spent their lives being told that they were too unclean and sinful to enter the temple and receive the forgiveness of God. They had spent their whole lives living under hundreds of behavioral laws that were not enacted by their God, but by humans. And these people were desperate for some good news. And that is what Jesus brought. So then, as Jesus proclaims this good news in all the neighboring towns and cities, the implied setting is that these crowds are gathering at each of these cities. The people are gathering around him. And as the crowds come and gather around, and Jesus is interacting with them, he's healing sicknesses, he is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, he could see that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he had compassion on them. What an incredible line. There's so many gods that we could look to if we look into all of the pantheons of the Greeks and of the Romans and Norse and all of them. We could look anywhere, the uh, Native Americans. We could look and we could see. But how often are those gods characterized by the compassion they have on their subjects? And here we have Jesus, God in the flesh, coming and having compassion on those who are weak and helpless. He felt a care for those who were lost and downtrodden. He felt a desire for them to be made whole. He knew that they longed for freedom, but they, that, that they did not know how to find it. And Jesus knew that his human physical limitations meant that he couldn't be everywhere at once to proclaim this good news, the hope of this good news, of his kingdom, to everyone who needed to hear it. So then what does he say to his disciples in verse 37? He turns to his disciples and says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He recognizes the need for more than one person to be proclaiming this good news of the kingdom if they are going to reach everyone who needs to hear. There are so many just waiting to hear this message of hope, but so few who are willing and able to go, to go proclaim it, to tell it. Jesus tells his disciples what they should be doing in response to the scarcity of labor. In verse 38, he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into his harvest. So we start to see here three things. And I've been a good Baptist this morning and gotten the alliteration of three M's. First, we see the motivation of Jesus. And the motivation of Jesus is compassion. What is it that led him to say this? His compassion for those who are lost, for those who are harassed and helpless. This is important because we see that the motivation is not simply duty. It's not, oh, I was sent here to do this, I might as well do it. 
but it is a compassion, a desire for the lost to be made right, to be made whole, a desire for sin to be destroyed, and a desire for people to know the hope of the gospel. And so then we have the means. What are the means by which this is to be done? Laborers. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Even now, 2,000 years later, after Jesus is talking about these things, after Jesus gives the Great Commission to his disciples to go and make disciples of every nation, even now, nearly half of the world's people groups have never heard of Jesus Christ. Let's think about that. The means are the workers. But where are the workers? Where are those who will support the workers to send them out? Those who will stand up and say, I will give up everything for this. Those who will look to the great uh, men and women who came before us, like Adoniram and Ann Judson, who gave up everything. We'll, we'll dive into their story a little bit more uh, in just a second. But then what is the method that Jesus says? Pray earnestly. This is how it's going to be done. It's going to be done through laborers who go out. But the method of how this is going to happen is through prayer. It's not through our ideas of what's going to make a good, uh, uh, able to explode in churches. It's not, uh, in missions today, there's this idea that you need to plant as many churches as quickly as, you, as possible. They call it the rabid, rap, excuse me, the rabbit method of planting churches. They want to plant churches of three people at a time. Two or three people and just send them out, send them out, send them out. And they're fine with those churches dying, ultimately. They're fine with not taking the time to raise up disciples in that church. And really, the first time that someone says anything close to uh, or showing interest in studying the scriptures, they're like, yeah, start a Bible study. But they're not ready. The Bible has clear uh, instructions for those who are to lead churches and qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. Those qualifications of what it means to be an elder or a pastor or someone who leads and shepherds a church. And one of them is not a recent convert. So what does that mean for missionaries who are going to places where there is no, no understanding of the word of God, of the name of Jesus? That means in order to plant a church, you have to work for years and years to get this done. You might have to work for years and years before a convert is seen. And so we have to be aware that not all missions are the same. And so when we give to missions, let's uh, come and talk to me about it as well so that we can be wise in the way that we give to missions. Uh, that's why I'm all for supporting someone who is going into a church that is already there, building up that church and the potential of being sent out to plant more. And so that is why I am 100% behind Anna and Serge, like what I had said earlier. Um, and our prayer is to be that God would send laborers into the harvest. So then, really quickly, just kind of glancing at the next chapter, the beginning of the next chapter, chapter 10, we start to see that God, that Jesus sends laborers into the harvest. He says, pray earnestly, and then he starts to send them. And what does he do? In uh, chapter 10, verse 1, he calls together his 12 disciples and gives them the same authority that he has to heal, to cast out uh, demons, to do those things. And then Matthew names all the 12 apostles, and we're going to talk about that probably next week or in two weeks. Um, so I'm not going to go through it right now. But then in verse 5, these 12, the disciples that Jesus called around him, Jesus sent out, instructing them, 
Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So who is it that Jesus sends out? His disciples. Who was it that Jesus told to pray earnestly that the Lord would send out laborers into the harvest? Look at verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the same people he told to pray, he sent out. There's not always a difference there. And there's not usually a difference. The very people that Jesus spoke to and told to be praying for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest are the same people who are sent out to labor and then bring in the harvest. You see, Jesus' followers are called to labor in the fields. All of his followers are called to this. This is why we call them mission fields. They're fields to be worked in. And I don't think we have any farmers here, but we're in an area of farmers. And uh, cultivating crops takes work. You got to make the soil tillable. You got to till the soil until it's able to be sown. You got to do the hard work of uh, breaking down the rocks that are in the soil that need to get out of there for these plants, the gospel seeds, to be able to be sown and take root. Because if you just cast gospel seeds all around, Sure, some of them are going to take root, but for those who are in the rockier soil, you got to work for it. We're so quick to just want to harvest, and we don't want to do the work. So often we are content that, to pray that Jesus would send someone else out. Jesus invites his followers, though, to join him in his redeeming work. He doesn't just go around and say, I'm, I got this, guys. I got this. Sit back. He invites his disciples in to join him in this great work. What glorious purpose for our lives. So often we operate with the assumption that only the super spiritual people are sent out into the mission field. They're the only ones who go out and proclaim the gospel to people who have never heard it. I, I'm, not, I'm not gifted as an evangelist, so I'm not going to go out. But it doesn't matter if it's your gifting. It is a command in the scriptures to evangelize. All those who know and believe the gospel are commanded to share it with those who have not heard and do not yet believe. That is our commandment. That is our work that we have been given as Christians. To join in with the redeeming work of Christ. He says his sheep hear his voice and know his voice. And uh, the Apostle Paul, throughout his letters, he talks about the need to proclaim the gospel, to say it, to be able to proclaim it to people. Because if no one is sent, or if no one speaks, how can anyone hear? And if no one is sent, how can they speak? If no one goes out, how can anybody hear? Because nobody's there to speak it. And he makes it clear in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel is the power to save people. And so, if the gospel is the power to save people, and it is through the proclamation of the gospel that Jesus saves people, it is in a very real sense that when we go out and proclaim the gospel, Jesus is speaking through us and calling to his lost sheep. He's inviting us in to join in this labor. No matter where you are, you are called to glorify Jesus by proclaiming the same good news of the kingdom that he did. And where does Jesus send his disciples first? 
He says, don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to everyone else. Go to your own people. Go to the tribes of Israel. Go to your own people. Getting on a plane, guys, is not a magic trick to make us good evangelists. We have to go out. If we're not doing the work here, we're not going to do the work there. And that's why, uh, again, I am fully behind Anna and Serge because I've seen it. They trained me in it at times in how to evangelize and speak with people. They showed me boldness and courage, and it's wonderful. And it's, it's great that we can look to people and be encouraged and be brought up in it. <clears throat> so Anne Hasseltine Judson, Adoniram's first wife, shows us a beautiful example of what this looked like in her life after she heard and believed the good news and then grew as a Christian. In her diaries, she, uh, we were given a gift to be able to see the way she, she goes through life, the way that uh, the progression of her conversion. And first, her heart was overcome with gratitude for God's redeeming love and saving grace. And we can look at uh, the, the track of her life and view that as a model for our own lives as well. In the ways that we, if we want to move forward in evangelism and missions, we need to seek to grow in the same way that Anne did, or in our own particular ways as well. But this gives us a nice model. Her heart was overcome first with a gratitude for God's redeeming love and saving grace. Her motivation began as the goodness of God. It was the goodness of God that starts to motivate her. At 16 years old, shortly after her conversion, she writes this, My chief happiness now consisted in contemplating the moral perfections of the glorious God. 16. I lost all disposition to grumble at anything God brought before me, assured that such a being could not err in any time or way. She's saying, I know that God is good. And I grew to the point where I, 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 I can't believe, I can't grumble at things that God puts before me because I know it's God who's putting it there. It's not uh, an accident that these things are coming before my life. Shortly after her conversion, a friend wrote about her and, uh, and her unwillingness to sit idly by. Her friend writes this about Anne. Redeeming love was now her theme. One might spend days with her without hearing of any other subject reverted to. She couldn't talk about anything else. It was overwhelming her. The goodness of God. Then as she continued to grow as a Christian, her compassion for the lost grew as well. And then her motivation began to grow. And she utilized that method that Jesus said. She began praying for the lost regularly. And a couple years later, she wrote in her journal, I've spent this evening in prayer for quickening grace. I felt my heart enlarged to pray for spiritual blessings for myself my friends, the church at large, the heathen world, and the African slaves. I felt a willingness to give myself away to Christ to be disposed of as he pleases. An 18-year-old. Then she met a young man named Adoniram who was preparing to go to Burma as a missionary, and he asked for her permission to pursue her hand in marriage. And suddenly, the means were there. The motivation was there. God gave her the motivation. Then she started to use the method of praying earnestly that God would send laborers into the harvest and allowing herself to consider, maybe that's me. And then 
God brought into her life one who was leaving as a laborer to be her husband. And she wrote this soon after. When I get near to God and discern the excellence of the character of the Lord Jesus, and especially his power and willingness to save, I feel desirous that the whole world should become acquainted with this Savior. The motivation was the goodness of God and then compassion for others to see that, to know the goodness of God. And the progression of Anne Hasseltine's desires and thoughts show us a simple truth about being a Christian. When we dwell on the excellencies of God and what Jesus has done for us, there should be a natural progression toward wanting to see the whole world knowing this great truth. When we think about the glories of God, naturally it should overflow. There should be a growing desire for others to know this and a growing belief that God will make it happen. No one starts as a great man or woman of God, but they grow into it naturally as they nurture and cultivate those desires and beliefs. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, said, All of God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they believed God would be with them. That's what they were counting on, was God would be there. Maybe we don't see these giants rising up among us because we've gotten used to great comfort. Maybe we give up too soon because we expect immediate harvest and not the task of tilling the fields and sowing the seeds. Adoniram and Ann Judson were willing to labor. His desire to see a hundred converts did not come to fruition quickly or without great sacrifice. He worked for six years and saw no converts. Six years! And he finally saw one shortly after that. Six years alone with your wife as the only Christians in the country. And he kept working. And it took another six years for him to see a total of 18 converts. In 12 total years, he saw 18 converts. That's about the amount of people that we have here this morning. It took him 12 years to get there. Including himself and Anne, that would bring their total church membership to 20. 12 years of work to get to here. And then also about 12 years into his mission, he was in prison for almost two years. Because the government thought he was an English spy. And he suffered from fever and malnutrition and was forced to march while he was in prison. He was only released due to the courage and resourcefulness of his wife, Anne, because she went and convinced the government to use him as a translator. Anne then died from smallpox later that year. After they had been laboring together for 14 years, she was in her 30s. She gave up her life for the Lord, gave up her health for the Lord. Gave up her future. By all accounts, she was a bright and pleasant young woman who probably could have drawn the greatest suitor to her in her time. Instead, she chose to give it all up. And after Anne died, her young and only surviving child of three children, only surviving one of three that they had, died six months later. Adoniram was now alone. 
Adoniram then outlived another wife and was constantly battling sickness throughout his life. He ultimately saw the deaths of six of his 11 children. This wasn't something that was easy. When we see those great numbers, we're so excited. Oh, 8,000 converts. But it's not easy to get to that point. And it's not without suffering and pain. This labor was hard, and it took decades to complete. And he expected no less. When he was preparing to be sent as a laborer into the harvest, he counted the cost of the work that Jesus called his disciples to and found it to be worth it. And he expected no more or less from his future wife and family. About two years before he left America, when he asked Anne for her hand in marriage, she said, you got to ask my dad. And so Adoniram Judson wrote a letter asking for uh, her hand in marriage. And this is what Adoniram had to say to his potential father-in-law. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise, which shall rebound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. What a proposal. Can you imagine when you asked uh, men, when you asked for the hand of marriage? Could you imagine going like that? Can you imagine if your own child was considering marriage to someone saying that? And to this man's great credit, he said, I trust God. And he turned to his daughter and said, it's up to you. If this is the way God is leading you, I will do so. And man, he didn't sugarcoat it, did he? Adoniram, how many of you would think to propose like that? Or how many would be willing to let your daughter marry a man who said that? Like, this is, this is the life I'm giving her. <laughs> you you want to let her go? Absolutely not. But while the request was filled with the anticipation of pain, it was also filled with a vision of glorious purpose and obedience to God. And that's exactly what they faced and exactly why they were willing to face it. Instead of trying to downplay and ignore the very real difficulties of being a laborer in the fields of God's harvest, Judson knew that there would be work accompanied by blood and tears to bring about a harvest. And Hasseltine did become his wife, even after that letter to her father. And she too was prepared to sacrifice everything to glorify God. She wrote to a friend shortly after the proposal, I feel willing and expect, if nothing in providence prevents, to spend my days in this world in heathen lands. Yes, Lydia. 
I have about come to the determination to give up all my comforts and enjoyments here, sacrifice my affection to relatives and friends, and go where God and His providence shall see fit to place me. What glorious purpose in life. What trust that God really is God and that He really is good. That I would give up everything, my comforts and my enjoyments, my love for my family and my friends, so that wherever God would take me to glorify His name, I would do so willingly because He is good and He deserves it all. And I think she hits on the main things that the accuser, Satan, uses to ensure that we Americans are awful evangelists. We are too used to comforts and enjoyments. We are too unwilling to let go of our love for our family and friends. We are so eager and willing to pray for laborers to be sent so long as they don't include me or my family or my friends. We don't want to give up what we love and enjoy for the sake of the glory of God. And I'm as guilty as anyone. And I'm regularly second-guessing if I'm choosing certain things for my own comfort, even if they seem to be the Christian thing to do. Do you know how many times in my life I've chosen to do the Christian thing and it's all for my glory? And it's not just affecting us. When we have this attitude, do you know what one of the biggest obstacles to missionaries who are seeking to leave America to go and follow the Great Commission? The biggest obstacle their Christian family. The biggest obstacle to missionaries is their Christian family members who are unwilling to let them go. As much as I love my sons, I pray that God would send them and use them for His glorious purposes, no matter where on earth that is. And I also pray that I would have the trust in God to say, go with my unconditional blessing. How often do we pray for God to send someone to reach someone we know and interact with on a regular basis? God, please send a Christian to reach my son or my daughter or my father or my mother, my brother or sister. They need you, God. God has sent someone. By the very nature of you, a Christian, being in proximity to those people that you're praying that God would send a Christian to, that means that God has sent you. God, please send someone to reach my neighbor or coworker. They need you so badly. God has sent someone. He sent you. You're there. God, please send someone to go and reach the dark places in my neighborhood. Please send someone to regularly preach the gospel here to help those lost in darkness and to be a light. God has sent someone. He sent you. Brothers and sisters, I hope you realize that if you think that it's only my job as your pastor to proclaim the good news, then you're wrong. And that's a job I will work myself out of if it's the last thing I do. I will spend all of my days working to train you guys to be able to do this. My primary job as pastor is to care for your souls by reminding you, the Christians, the members of this church, of the good news and to lead out and what that means for us as a church. That is my primary job. That is how the Bible talks about the role of a pastor or elder. However, as Christians, which most of us claim to be, all of us claim to be, we are called to labor in the fields and seek the glory of God through proclaiming the good news to those we come in contact with, no matter if we are in Burma 
or up on top of Pleasant Hill. That includes me as well. If your heart is always hoping that someone else will do the work of a Christian for you, then you need to stop praying for laborers and start praying for labor. Start praying that God would equip you for labor. And come ask me for help if you need it. I am here to help you and strengthen you. To teach you and equip you. But barring intervention from the Holy Spirit, I can only operate out of what I see and what I know. If you don't come to me and ask me for specific guidances, I can't help you as, as, as clearly to the situation. Now, by the providence of God, His word is not empty. But the best thing you can do is to come to me. Or uh, the best thing you can do for me to be able to interact with you is come to me. And if you don't know where to start, come and ask me. Say, I don't know where to start in evangelism. Come and tell me that. And also start where Jesus started in this passage. What is the motivation of Christ? Compassion for the lost. Start here. These are practical things to uh, work forward uh, to as well. Think about this. Start here. If you do not care for and have a compassion for the lost, then plead with the Holy Spirit to grant that to you. Earnestly pray that the Spirit would give you a compassion for lost people. And then pray for and seek out opportunities to labor. Interact with people who are lost. Get out of your house. Get out of this church and go and interact with people who are lost. Go to where the lost people are and proclaim the good news. Go and meet people and ask them about their lives. Have them tell you their story. If you aren't very good at asking questions about people, go ask my wife for a lesson in it. She excels at getting to know people in a way that isn't prying, at least to most people. And frankly, I'm jealous of how good she is at it. If you need help in that, ask her for that. We are the body of Christ to strengthen and build up one another. The more you know someone in their state, the more you will care about them. It's easy to not care when we're not involved. And it's just as easy to trick ourselves into believing we care when, when we don't because we're not involved. And then again, ask me for help if you need it. Please. Please. So then what are the means that Jesus proposes? Laborers who will, get, who will go out of their way to cultivate the harness, harvest. And what is the method? Prayer. Because God is the one who gives the workers of the harvest. So pray earnestly. Brothers and sisters, prayerlessness is pridefulness. If you're not praying, you're thinking that you can do it on your own. You're not seeking God to help you. Seeking the work of the Holy Spirit. Three final encouragements from Adoniram Judson on how we can persevere as harvesters. He says, first, don't be surprised by early discouragements. Adoniram cautioned that, and here's his quote, you will be met with disappointments and discouragements, which will lead you at first almost to regret that you have embarked in the cause. Beware, therefore, of the reaction you will experience from a combination of all these causes, lest you become disheartened at commencing your work. Second, don't let tiredness, stress, or a longing for comfort lead you into temptation. Adoniram warned of a pull toward ease, and uh, quote, after you have acquired the language, and become fatigued and worn out with preaching the gospel to a disobedient and gainsaying people. 
Justin goes on to explain that fatigue often causes Christians to seek more comfortable pursuits and that Satan would be happy to tempt us towards comfort. Satan's best workers are the comfortable and complacent Christians because they're not going out and doing the work that they've been called to. And they think they are. They think they're fine. Finally, don't let secret pride take root. Adoniram often jumped rope to keep in physical shape, but he warned that spiritual health was even more important to survival on the mission field. He warned others to guard their spiritual health and to, quote, beware of pride. Not the pride of proud men, but the pride of humble men. The secret pride, which is apt to grow out of the consciousness that we are esteemed by the great and good. For those of you who are striving for labor, to labor for the Lord, thank you. Strive on. Don't give up. If you need prayer because of discouragement with that, come and talk to me. Let's do this. Let's pray. Let's work together on this. And let's start forming uh, some plans, some ideas of how we can reach our neighborhood. But may God cause those of us who are not laboring to grow increasingly unsettled in our lack of effort until we joyfully join in with the labor. And then may God grant us the endurance to not grow weary of laboring for the same good news that Jesus labored for. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. You've given us good news. That good news is that we can be redeemed to you. We can join in on your kingdom. We can labor in your kingdom to cultivate and see more growth. God, may we lean into the understanding that the crowns we will receive in heaven are crowns that will be given because of us working in gospel work, in evangelism, in discipleship, in building up the church. And then, God, those crowns are not for us, but to throw down at the feet of Jesus. God, may we labor with joy and faith that you are good and you are wonderful. May we labor for, so that we may have gifts to give to our Savior, Jesus. God, may we respond in faith to the words that have been spoken today. Help us to honor and glorify you. Give us the knowledge, the ability, and God, may we labor together as a church towards this end. We love you, Father. Help us to love you more. We glorify your name this morning, God. Help us to glorify it more. You are so good. We're so grateful. So undeserving. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.